This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to ABG, a podcast for the modern-day Asian-American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Janet. And it's Mel. Hi, everyone. Um, Today's actually a very special day for us. It's the first time we're having a female guest on our podcast. She is an Asian-American woman that has been using her creative abilities to really make an impact on this world. Welcome, Krista Sa, a feminist, an artist, a Hollywood screenwriter, the creator of The Pussyat Project, and author of DIY Rules for a WTF World. Uh, For those in our audience who are following the Women's March movement, you may have noticed the bright pink hats that many people were wearing at the 600-plus rallies around the world. Well, Krista is the individual responsible for creating and distributing the design and essentially empowering millions of people around the world to make and wear this symbol of solidarity in support of women's and human rights. So welcome, Krista. Welcome for joining us. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in because we have a lot of questions for you today. Um, So I know you've detailed on your website and in your book, but uh, for those who are listening and maybe are not as familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about the Pussy Hat Project and how you came up with the idea? Sure. Um, I was really devastated by the results of the election in 2016. I was fully ready for our first woman president. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you guys remember that night, how like shocking it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I remember going to bed thinking like, oh my God, this can't be happening. I was really devastated, really demoralized. But that same week, news of the Women's March came up and I knew um, I would go just Mm -hmm. immediately. I was trying to figure out what I could do. Like, was there something more I could do than just show up? What could I wear? What sign could I hold up? Just thinking really visually because one photograph nowadays can change the world. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. one visual. Right. Backing up a second, I was really proud of myself because I was so fueled. I was like, damn, like, I would march naked for this. <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm really committed. But, you know, there was no, like, meaning to being naked. So I was like, okay, okay. And then I had kind of this gentle, teasing voice come up that voice was like okay Krista maybe you would march naked in LA in January I don't know if you're gonna march naked Mm. in DC in January (laughs) right Um, I don't know about you guys but I grew up in Southern California like pretty much all my life I never checked the weather so I was like oh yeah I have to actually dress for cold so you know that meant like a winter coat and like gloves and a scarf and a hat and I thought oh I can knit my own hat and that's something that I had been really obsessed with at the time knitting Mm -hmm. so that felt right like I could make my own protest gear with my own hands so you did the opposite of going naked yes (laughs) I got really warm and cozy actually yeah that just felt so meaningful you know Mm -hmm. and really empowering that like oh like not only can I make a statement I could really make it like literally and I also thought of the American flag uh, was made by Betsy Ross right Mm. with her own two hands and in some ways that's our nation's first piece of protest gear and it was Mm. made by a woman so I was like oh my Mm. god this is it there's something to it my next thought it was really it was that lightning bolt moment it was like oh like I'm a beginner knitter if I can make this hat, anyone could. Mm-hmm. And that's when it went from one to many. Like, I could see a sea of pink at the march. And that felt really, like, I was just so jazzed. You know, when you have a great idea. And I immediately texted my friend Kat, who owns a yarn store. And she knows how to make patterns and all this. Um, she teaches me how to knit and crochet. 
I texted her immediately with like all caps, all these emojis. I was like, I just had the best idea ever. You have to help me. Oh my God. And so when I got back to the store, uh, we got started and we really spread it. So it, it was a way to capture all the feelings I had in a communal way. And how did you even have the idea to like start? Like, who did you reach out to in DC to start like distributing your? Um, your manifesto in terms of like how to actually knit this? Great question. I, Kat was actually um, an amazing resource in many ways because she's really plugged into the crafting community. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people like feel like it came out of nowhere, but anyone who's done like crafting or knitting or crocheting, sewing, like they're like, oh, like of course this happened because women... um, like I didn't reinvent the wheel. There's already a community of crafters out there. And I kind of just asked them if they'd be willing to be craftivist for this march. So your friend was already kind of plugged into that community. Like, was she in, uh, like, different social media, like, groups? Yeah, also- I mean, you guys, uh, um, like, spools people over. There's a whole different social media platform, you could call it, just for knitters. It's called Ravelry, and there's oh. 8 million people on oh, it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's the Um, demographic, age demographic of that? I don't know, but actually on my book tour, um, I go to all the different, uh, all these different yarn stores that are part of the movement. Mm. And um, I would say like a lot of the women who go to these events are women in their 50s or 60s. Right, yeah. So um, a lot of older women are part of it. Um, I get emails from older women and I love it because any woman over the age of like 65 always like to tell me their age like I'm a 70 year old black woman and I wore a pussy I was like I'm an 80 year old um Minnesotan and I made 70 pussy hats or something you know just like like they always state their age it's so cool that's true because you have, you have like this group of people who are retired some most yeah. of a lot of them yeah. who have this like yeah. passion for knitting and here you are you're like I need an army of people to just help me knit this and like distribute it well also yeah. knitters just really and I when I say knitters I kind of am like yarnies or just all these people who um craft and knit um knitters just really love to help like i don't know if any of you guys have ever received a handmade gift from a knitter they love giving out what they make and like clothing people and sheltering people with that Mm -hmm. so it was it's like a really human basic instinct i think um that i asked them to apply this time toward um the women's movement i didn't have to like teach people how to come together to do this because it's not like I had to like send all out all these emails like, hey guys, like get together with your friends and um, sew hats and talk about the issues because there's already such thing as a stitch and bitch. So, nice. um, oh. <laughs> so I didn't have to invent that. Um, another thing I did not have to invent is like, hey guys, when you're like starting to make your pussy hat, maybe like take a picture and put it on social media to spread the word because there's already such thing as like casting on. Casting on is when you start. Mm -hmm. And then so people be like, I'm casting on for this project. It's like I did not have to like ask them to do that. They just did that on their own. That's so Um, cool. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the cool thing about it too is that it is really simple. Like, you know, I keep talking about knitters, but this is really about women's rights supporters who took part, whether they were making them, wearing them, spreading Mm -hmm. the word. And making them was something that uh, you could learn how to do, mm-hmm. like, in those two months, you mm-hmm. know? And a lot of people learned how to knit for the first time. That is an amazing backstory. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the design, the specific design of the hat itself, and then how you, how that kind of arrived? Yeah, a lot of people think, like, oh, it's a pussy hat, it's anti-Trump, right? And um, I think people have this idea that we went through Trump's greatest hits, like the worst things he said, and just like, mm-hmm. how do we react to that in a clever mm-hmm. way? But that it actually was way more organic than that. So uh, when I got to uh, the yarn store and went over things with Kat and the other people at, in the store, the first thing we decided on was the color. The color is pink. I think we did discuss like, mm, should it be purple, should it be this? But ultimately, I really wanted to embrace the fact that it was feminine. Because I think no matter what color uh, we chose, if it was considered feminine, it'd be considered weak or lesser. You know, I we got a lot of criticism, you know, from people who were, uh, I call them the dignity crew. Mm. They were like, no, 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 we can't wear pink. We need something more dignified. How about these like blue, um, 
<laughs> baseball caps made in China. We could all buy these what? and wear them. I'm like, oh, I don't think you get it. Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> and after I dropped pre-med, I became an art history major. And so I can tell you that a couple hundred years ago, it was actually totally reversed. Blue was the color of women mm-hmm. and pink was the color of men. Blue be- was feminine, of course, because it was oceanic and demure and calm and peaceful Mm. and the virgin mary always wore blue robes and it was a very expensive color to make whereas men were uh red and pink was the offshoot of red right so and they were like fiery and uh warlike and blood and gore Mm -hmm. and all these things so it was like tough so Mm -hmm. obviously pink was for men right Mm -hmm. obviously i say (laughs) and then uh so i guarantee you that if that was still the case today um, if we wore blue pussy hats, people would be like, oh my God, can't you do something more dignified like pink? You know, right, so it doesn't right. matter what color is associated with women. Whatever is associated with women right now is considered lesser. And I wanted to like throw that into like under the spotlight and question mm-hmm. that and run right into it. Mm-hmm. So it was pink. Uh, secondly, it was cat ears. And it actually came from more of a design place at first where. I just really wanted a different silhouette. I don't know if you guys have do a lot of networking in your jobs, but if I go to a networking event and I know everyone's going to wear pantsuits, I'll wear a dress. And it does, it's not because it's more feminine or whatever. It's because it stands out because of the silhouette. Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone's going to wear dresses, I'm going to wear like, you know, a suit, you yeah. know, a pantsuit. So um, it's just a really great, easy way to stand out because... I think more than color, more than print, your eye is drawn to different lines. Right. Yeah. So I really wanted cat ears instead of like the normal sort of beanie with a pom pom on top. Mm-hmm. But when I asked cat, like, look, I want it to be really easy to make. And because I see beanies with pom poms on top everywhere, I guess that's the easiest thing to make. So I'm willing to let go of the cat ears because I don't want people to spend extra time making cat ears. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, no, cat ears are the easiest thing to make. So I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's just so meant to be. Um, So it was pink, cat ears, and the last thing was the name. And so just like, you know, I didn't want to be naked without meaning. I didn't want it to be cat ears without meaning. So I asked the people in the yarn store, like, all right, like, what is the meaning behind cat ears? Hmm. And it was silent, silent, silent. And then Cat Coil, she speaks up and she says, it's the pussy power hat. And we're like, oh my God, that's it, that's <laughs> so it. And it's like, it just all came together. And I'm so glad you asked that question because sometimes it's hard for me to talk about in that, to convey how intentional it was, but also how lucky it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, we really thought through every detail, mm-hmm. but we were also so lucky and blessed that it's like, oh my gosh, cat ears are easy to make. Oh wait, this, yeah. this name is working right. out. And of course, like the pussy hat, the name uh, really worked because it had a charge to right, it. Yeah. And it did relate to Trump and that his recently comments on the Access Hollywood tape where he says, like, grab him by the pussy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a good way to relate to it. But just like the whole movement itself, like, yeah, it's about Trump. But it's about so much more than that. It's mm-hmm. about women's rights and women's respect. I actually had a follow-up question to that. I feel like language is something that drives a lot of thinking or how we think in society. I agree. Right? If you think about it, like history is his story. Mm-hmm. Mankind is mankind. But or like masterpiece versus like mistress piece. So, right. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> and so I feel like male privilege is embedded not just in our system of thought, but in the language that we use. So some people say the word bitch should go the way of like the n-word where women can use that their discretion but not men because it carries with it centuries of repression so do you feel the same way about the word pussy do you feel like women can only use it or you feel discomfort when men use the word pussy because of this movement because of this project and how women are sort of you know taking the word back for ourselves I know exactly what you're talking about. A lot of men ask me this, like, am I allowed to say the word pussy? Like, as if, like, yeah, everyone has to go through me, like, and I can (laughs) say yes or no. Um, I really appreciate when men use, when anyone uses the the word pussy hat. I also think, like, with so much um, tone and context mean a lot. Yeah, how are you using that word, right? Mm -hmm. There's a book I uh, talk about in my book, like, very meta. It's her, uh, her name is... um, Regina Thomas Howard, she wrote a book called Pussy. Mm -hmm. And for her, pussy means um, like the feminine life force, you know, divine feminine. It's like that womanly intuition that we all have. That you don't, by the way, need a literal like vagina and uterus and vulva to um, 
have or explore. So for me, that's what pussy means. But for a lot of people, pussy means um, a weak person, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to take that out of, uh, similar to the N-word, right? Right. Um, Like, I think it depends how you use it. Mm -hmm. And I think like with like a lot of language change, um, it can take uh, some time. Not It doesn't have to take a ton of time, but I think sort of in phases, right? So I think the first phase, yeah, like I think probably women can use it and explore how they want to use it. Like I I have this a thing, an exercise in my book I call pussy schedules because it's just about me like not over-scheduling my day and instead just following my pussy. Like what does my pussy want to do today? <laughs> like, you know? And it's like it's really helpful for decisions because it's like, I don't know, does my pussy want to do it? Like, you know? Um, the power to your pussy. Yeah, you. exactly. I don't know. I think probably for a little bit, it's going to be like a, a woman's word um, or like a female identifying person's word. But we're not there yet. But, you know, um, in order to get there, like no matter where you fall on the spectrum, um, like the feminine has to be way more respected because – we talk about feminism, right? And it's like, oh, women's rights. Mm-hmm. But really, like, it's the feminine, the femininity that is being disrespected in mm-hmm. all of us, men, women, in between, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think that, like, as pussy grows to mean something more about, like, feminine, divine intuition, like, probably all people can use that word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really yeah. about the intention yeah. behind it, mm-hmm. how you use the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you share a little bit about um, yourself, maybe where you grew up, your cultural background? So I know in your book you said you're half Korean, um, half Chinese, and that you grew up in a sort of tiger mom household. So myself, Janet, and Mel, we also grew up in fairly traditional Asian households. And our, our parents have always encouraged us to like put our head down, work hard, not disrupt the patriarchy. <laughs> and here you are like stirring up controversy, having a voice, and speaking out against men, yeah. which for if that were me, my parents would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> right? So what do your parents actually like think about this? You know, it's interesting. I think I kind of gave my parents boot camp um, when I decided to become a screenwriter because they went through all this already with like, oh my God, you're going to be what? You know? <laughs> yeah. And so when I started doing the pussy hat, it was a little bit like it wasn't their first rodeo, you know? Um, and it wasn't mine either. Uh, I think it was easier for me to be an activist or become an activist in the last couple years because about 10 years ago, I went against what my loved ones wanted for me. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted me to be safe. They wanted me to um, be pre-med or... Um, something right and I and when I went against what they wanted for me that was really hard yeah and so you know fast forward 10 years I'm like 29 years old and I have this idea for the pussy hat and at that point it's like well I think being an activist is like you have to go against what a lot of people think Mm -hmm. sometimes and because I'd already done that with people I love it was so easy to do that against like the alt-right and Trump because you know these are people who don't care about me it's like well yeah I can speak up I mean, I would say I was like such the cliche Asian American kid. Mm-hmm. I was a black belt in Taekwondo. I took piano. Um, I got like straight A's, and um, I went to Troy High School in um, oh Orange County. Yeah, so um, I don't know what that means. you get tested into the high oh. school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a public magnet school. Okay. Um, I think it's actually, it's, they're responsible for this thing called bright flight. Do you know what that is? No. So, you know, white flight is when like minorities move in and like white people leave. Uh Bright flight is like, so it's a public school, right? And you have to test to get in and they Mm -hmm. literally like steal like the brightest kids from all the surrounding districts Uh, and gather them. I actually went to a school like that too in Boston. Yeah. (laughs) And like how many of those like test people testing in were Asian, right? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really um, pressure cooker high school experience. Mm. I went to an Ivy League seven sister school in New York. I went to Barnard College of Columbia University and when I was there, I was supposed to be pre or I was pre-med. And I thought I was making these choices on my own. Yeah. And my parents are like the ultimate tiger mom and dad in that 
they made me think I was choosing it. It was like Jedi mm. level, like <laughs> Tiger Mom, right? Where I was like, yeah, no, I I want the best for myself. I'm going to be pre-med. I'm really smart and I can handle this. And the whole idea was I would be pre-med just in case. The idea being like, I'm going to explore other things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just to be safe, I'm going to def- be take all my pre-med courses. So if I don't find something that really fits, I'll have it ready to go. Mm-hmm. But what I found was that being pre-med just in case, there's no such thing. You're, you're right. just pre-med. Yeah, you're like, right. you know, and I didn't it's have any... Much work, yeah. Right, and I didn't have any time to explore outside mm-hmm. of that. So yeah. my sophomore year, when it's time to declare your major... Mm-hmm. Um, I called up my parents. I remember like really like bolstering myself like, okay, Krista, you can do this. Like I close the door to my dorm room and like I make a quiet space for myself and I call them. I'm going to tell them I'm not going to be pre-med, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so they're both on the phone. I tell them and they're like, that's okay. I'm like, what? Yeah. I was like, yeah, right? No, I was like, what? Uh, Well, here's, here's the thing. They were like, you can be pre-law instead. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, oh my god! And I actually was. I actually took the LSAT and everything because I was oh my like, gosh, you know, really? yeah, I got a 98th percentile. Just wow. saying. Um, <laughs> I remember the day it expired too, because it expires five years after you take it. I'm like, I guess that's really not happening anymore. <laughs> like. You talk about your background. I think a lot of our listeners can relate because we kind of grew up with that tiger mom or these Asian American expectations on us. For me personally, I feel like in my family, we never talked about American politics. I was never educated on it. We talked about like Taiwanese politics, some Taiwanese, but like how did you get involved in like activism and politics and like how can our listeners get, I guess, more engaged with that world? Um, Well, I think as a broad stroke thing is that first of all, like anything is learnable. Like everything is figure outable. I wanted to be a part of this like humorous comedy writing community and like I bought a book that was like how to be funny even if you're not (laughs) yeah like but you know but it's like that kind of like beginner's mindset of just like it's okay to be a beginner whether Mm -hmm. it's politics or humor or like even frankly like dressing well like like stylishly I was like it seems like sometimes like you're either born with it mm-hmm. or you're not and that's not true mm-hmm. like all these things people learned it and so same with politics I feel like we're all so smart I mean that it's not like about like oh do you know enough about the issues or not uh, because I think being political is like yes you need to know the issues but you also like a big part of being considered political is speaking up about the issues Mm -hmm. so really like I think what you're asking me Mel isn't like how do I become more political it's like no you already are political it's like how do I get the confidence though to speak up about what I believe in yeah or how do I take the time to like really have confidence in myself to know I can come up with my own opinion about this Mm -hmm. right I think that's what my book really goes into because I didn't consider myself political for a long time like you know um, and I think a lot of people didn't, actually, until the uh, November 2016 election. I will say, though, I think I've always felt, like, annoyed that women didn't get their due, but I didn't really have, like, an outlet for it, right? So I talk about this in my book a bit, but um, it's kind of like one of my Me Too stories in a way. Like, in 2016, like, spring, Los Angeles Metro finally connected Santa Monica and LA, downtown LA. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was a big deal. And that weekend, everyone was writing it like for free and it was mm-hmm. like very celebratory. I, I ride that train and this guy in the car starts masturbating at me. What? And, yeah. Okay. Like, I could, like, that's a whole nother podcast. I won't feel like saying, like, I, you know, I didn't feel safe, right? Yeah. And then as I got out of the car at my stop, this other man, like, totally different scenario now like starts following me and blocking my exits and he never touches me but he's always like if I go this way he's like blocking mm. that exit and so on right and talking to me the whole time about uh how he's going to take me to this motel room what he's going to do to me and all this and uh, like by the way here I am trying to be like frugal and save money and I'm like oh my god like I have to call Lyft right now and I literally had to close the door on this guy like he was like about to come into the car with me I was like mm-hmm. oh my gosh. you know and yeah. so I get home and I'm just really um I mean, so many emotions, right? I'm like angry, I feel violated, I feel sad. And, you know, women are often accused of being like, oh, too emotional, right? Which is a whole nother Mm -hmm. thing. Like men are so emotional, seriously. But uh, (laughs) and uh, but I remember thinking like, oh, people, what if people don't listen to me because, you know, of all these emotions? Mm. And then it hit me that 
all right, for me to get home safely that night, it would have cost me $20, right? Yeah. Had I just gotten a lift from the very beginning. But for a man to get home safely, it would have cost him $2. And like, never mind how I feel, how you feel, like just looking at those numbers, like mm-hmm. how is that fair, right? right? Yeah. And that was the first night I, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to do something. And I like opened my computer and went to the Hillary Clinton website and just like donated money. I was like, I don't stand for this anymore. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. from the, so I donated my money to her. I also um, started campaigning for her, like mm-hmm. first locally. And then I flew out to Ohio. You connected a personal experience. Yeah. I connected a personal experience. Exactly. And when we were canvassing in Ohio, I was scared. I was like, oh, my God, I don't know enough about the issues. I certainly don't know mm-hmm. enough about like local Ohio issues. Mm-hmm. And what they said to us, like when they trained us and such was that like, just make it personal because mm-hmm. that's real. Like you, you know, that's authentic yeah. and it's it's the truth mm-hmm. and it's valid. The personal is political for sure. So it's about getting more confidence, but it's also about a shift in your mind of like actually valuing your life mm-hmm. and and understanding that it's worth fighting for. Because um, I think too often, especially um, immigrants and children of immigrants, are like well, who would care about my little issue here, like, or my commute, for example, like, you know, but like, some people are like, oh my god, this commute's horrible, what's my local politician doing about it, right, Mm -hmm. but we don't think that way, we're like, oh, gotta suck it up, you know, so accustomed to like, bending to rules versus knowing that we can set the rules, yeah, or like, knowing that we're a part of making the rules in the Mm. first place, you know, I think too often we just accept what's Like, oh, this is the way things are. When it's like, no, actually, we all have a part in making things the way they are. I think, Chrissy, you brought up a good point how we should just research. All these resources are at the tip of our hands. But I think as an Asian American, like a lot of us feel like that's not an option for us because we're not taught to like be proactive and like research these topics. Even for me, like I, I don't even know where to begin. Like I'm so intimidated. What do I even Google? Like what yeah. I don't like what do I look at? I don't I don't know. And I think Asian Americans, we're awesome and but we're Asian Americans are taught how to play a game, right? But we're not taught how to make games. Okay, so for example, grades, right? Yeah. It's like how do I and my kids get the best grades ever, mm-hmm. right? But we don't realize are grades even important? Are there other things? It's like, no, we just get so consumed. And it's like in that way we're like athletes of the mind right we're really good at that Mm -hmm. but we get too caught up in it sometimes that we forget that wait how is this game actually affecting our well-being um, ourselves as a community we just get so competitive right Um, another example is like saving money like Mm -hmm. I think frugality is like a cliche of Asian American people but that in itself is a game like how can I save the most money right Mm -hmm. and even in your so like talking about grades or money it's like what is the point of doing that right like I'm Mm -hmm. getting good grades in order to and then is there another way to do that so it'd be like reframing the rules exactly I think as a community as Asian Americans most of us is like get the pretty good job like wear the basic clothes just get by in London right because you don't want to be someone that's controversial to exactly whatever is out there because I guess we're taught to just you know again put our heads down and work and do good and get good jobs get good pay and help out the family and then that's like a successful life the game is optional it's always optional asian americans especially get caught in this haze of like it's not option it's the only thing only way you actually bring up a really good point in your book about the weapon versus the Mm. warrior yeah so asian americans are such good weapons but we we don't let ourselves be warriors right so for our listeners the weapon is someone who's utilized right so you work for a company you're super skilled like the best performer of whatever it is you're the best person for someone else when you're the weapon you're not the warrior who's actually trying to like dictate your own future and like investing in your own future you're doing it for someone else Right. And yeah. I think it's like, it's really tantalizing because it's like, okay, if I, if I ask any of you three, like, do you want to be objectified? You're like, no, like I'm too smart for that. Right. And we know that we don't want to be objectified. We know we don't want to be sexually objectified, but we're allowing ourselves to become utility objects and we mm-hmm. don't even realize. It. And why is because they sell it to us really well. They're like, they're not like, oh, do you want to be an object? It's like, do you want to be this amazing weapon? Mm-hmm. Like you'd be so powerful. You'd be so like... Everyone would want to work with you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, And I think our parents, our Asian-American parents, are teaching us to be amazing weapons, right? right? But 
really like true power lies in being the warrior, but it's scarier because a weapon can never be wrong, right? You're able to be perfect as a weapon, but you don't mm-hmm. make choices as a weapon. Someone else mm-hmm. uses you and they make choices of how to use you. Right. But when you make choices of how to use you, sometimes you might be wrong, right? Or you, you're going to make mistakes and you're, you're going to have to learn from them. And that's super scary. Mm-hmm. Like, So there's safety in being a weapon mm-hmm. versus a warrior. So we, have, so we have a lot of our listeners who write in and ask us, they don't say like, how do you help me become a warrior? But they do ask questions about like, so I'm kind of like stuck in this job. And it's like, you know, medical school or like, you know, in lawyers or whatever it is, right? Very like, almost like standard Asian jobs that your parents mm-hmm. expect for you. And they always ask us, like, how do you guys, you know, find these creative projects, passion projects that you do? Like, essentially, how do you become a warrior for yourself, right? So I guess if you were to give our listeners maybe, like, one or two tips on how to, like, get to that path, that'd be great. (laughs) Um, So I think all of my advice and exercises kind of fall into, like, two categories, zooming in or zooming out. So we could start off with zooming out. Like, if you don't know what you want, you could zoom out. And just look at your entire life. Just imagine it, like all the possibilities. And maybe even like write a eulogy for yourself. This is kind of dark, but it's really fun. You know, you could write, Krista Suh was a, you know, it's like, mm, like you know, yeah. she, she passed away on this day and like this is her life and so on. Because there's this whole idea of, um, you know, I didn't make this up, of not living for your resume, but for your eulogy, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're not sure what you want to do, what step to take, think really big and think about your whole life and what do you want to be remembered for Mm. in that life? So like if you're a lawyer now, do you want to be remembered for like, and then she went to an even bigger law firm. Like that's not going to end up in your eulogy. Like you know what I mean? Instead, it's like, do you want to be known for like philanthropy in your local area? Do you want to be known for knitting people like funny gifts or sending cards to like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like these special stories that come up and become like really unique because it's really you. The other thing I talk about, um, so that's like a zoom out type Mm -hmm. of exercise and I have them in my book too, but a zooming in type of exercise is like the Midas touch, I call it, where you make a list of everything you touch in a day, like everything. So you wake up and it's like, okay, I just touched my pillow, my sheets. I like get out of bed and my feet touch this rug I have there. And then I walk over and I touch the toothbrush and whatever, like, you know, so you just make this list. It could be like a hundred or 200 mm-hmm. things, right? Um, but then like really drill down. This is about zooming in, right? Of How did that make me feel? And you could start improving your life in these small, small, small ways. But the reason why I talk, talk about zooming in is that um, I think it's really important to know how you feel about specific things because then you know what you want and then you know what to go after, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it gets you really clear. Like, for example, maybe you think that you love your job. <laughs> right. Um, but seriously, do you? Like when you turn in something, do you love the moment you click send? Um, does that feel good like mm-hmm. in your body? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see your coworkers in the morning, are you like, yay? Or are you like, oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, and so, cause those, that's actually what your job is made of all these tiny, tiny moments, right? right? right. Wait, it's side question. Because yeah. me and Helen were talking about this actually on the way to this recording. We're like, we're weapons. We're not warriors. I think it's really difficult when you work at corporate nine to five because you're working someone else's like, I'm, I'm doing something for like my CEO or whatever, right? But how do you become warriors at a corporate job? I guess the right. question is also like, we need good weapons to be utilized, right? Like warriors need weapons. People need to be mm. weapons as well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the way when I read warriors. that section of your book, the way I thought thought about it was like the main difference between a weapon and a warrior is that a warrior knows why they're doing something right and the thing they're doing is like serving that so I feel like even if you are working like the same thing in the same job someone could be a weapon and someone else could be a warrior if Mm -hmm. I'm doing like a corp job and I really don't like it it's it's disconnected from what I want but if I know exactly why I'm at that job it's to feed my family it's to pay my mortgage isn't that kind of being a warrior in the same thing so I think so, yeah, because then you're choosing. Again, mm-hmm. the women's right to choose. <laughs> um, I think uh, I have an exercise in my book. Um, it's like a language thing where instead of saying have to, you say I choose, choose to. to. Mm-hmm. I like that. So part. it's like, um, so maybe someone's writing in and it's like, I don't know, like I'm not, I don't really like my job. I have to 
go in every day at seven and do it's like you choose to go in at seven <laughs> like you know <laughs> So I know we've been talking um, sort of in the context of Asian Americans, because we are all Asian American yeah. women here. Um, and there's a term that's going around called intersectional feminism, which is essentially the, the idea that feminism is told through the perspective of maybe more of a white woman. So if you think about Sheryl Sandberg's uh, book, Lean In, it does have this haze of white privilege to it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess as a woman of color... Are you quoting my book? I am. Yeah, yeah chapter, the, the, the intro. Haze. Yeah, the haze. <laughs> Lifting the haze. So as a woman of color, how do you feel like your efforts as an Asian woman has been different from other women feminists who are white? Yeah, I think Asian Americans, it's, it's interesting because our experience is different from a white feminist, but it's also different from a black feminist. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I think it's really interesting that my good friend Milk, who is a singer-songwriter, she just got signed to Atlantic, her EP came out, and she actually blurred my book. So her song, Quiet, went viral at mm-hmm. the march. Um, she was on the Samantha B show singing it, um, and it was called the Unofficial Anthem of the Women's March. And guess what? Like, Krista Suh, her pussy hat, became the unofficial, like, symbol of the march right the symbol Mm. of the movement milk's uh real name is connie lim Mm. and she's asian american she's chinese american i'm chinese korean american asian americans came up with the biggest creative contributions like that are widely recognized right for the women's movement and no one talks about it it's Mm -hmm. like oh guess what they're like asian women are there like you know like and and contributing in this really amazing way right and um, and I remember, like, you know, in the first, like, sort of storm of interviews, like, kind of mentioning it here and there. And no one really, like, wanted to run with that, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I found really interesting. And I was like, is it the system or is it because, like, the, the audience isn't calling for stories like that? Um, is it both? Uh, but I do think that Asian American women have a double whammy of being quiet mm-hmm. of or being expected to be quiet. Mm-hmm. And so we have to work doubly hard to get over that and create like a really safe environment for us to mm-hmm. speak up. Right, right. We're considered like white minority, like a, a model oh, yeah. minority, right. like when it suits, you know, the patriarchy basically Mm -hmm. and we're considered like people of color when it suits us sort of like we get to get they sort of fit us in as needed Mm -hmm. so um there's been some controversy with the hat from the left actually so um having to intersectionalism which is like oh the hat is the pussy hat is pink and thus is only about white women right because it's like and that um, never even occurred to me that like oh like like and the vulva. The vulva. Yeah, yeah. Like, apparently, I didn't real, I didn't know this. Or mm-hmm. I, it was on the forefront of my mind that, like, oh, women's, white women's vulvas are apparently pink. And thus, like, and the thing is, like, we're not wearing vaginas on our heads. Right. They're yeah. cat ears. Yeah. But people are like, oh, that means the pussy hat is really um, white and anti-people mm-hmm. of color. I'm like, uh, hello. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> That's going deep just to, like, stir up some... Right, right. And, you know, the thing is, from day one, day zero, it was never about flesh color, right? Like, and as, like, Mm -hmm. I've talked about earlier. um, But it occurred to me that, like, oh, like, the controversy isn't so much that they think the pussy hat is wrong. It's just that the pussy hat has suddenly become, to some people, a symbol of white feminism and what's wrong about Mm -hmm. feminism, right? At first, I was like, oh, like, I wanted people to stop using it that way but I realized like you know what like their criticism isn't about the pussy hat it's about white feminism and I share that criticism Mm -hmm. and if they choose to use a symbol this as a symbol of that there's a there's nothing I could do about it like when I put like a hat out or like um a book out I can't go around to every individual person be like Helen did you understand exactly what I meant and like you know I can't like force people like that and so everyone has their own interpretation and I also think that it's a mistake to constantly, like, criticize how people are doing things um, where, like, for example, like, the pussy hat people criticize us, like, why are you using pink to use a more dignified color, you know? 
like um, don't protest that way. But I would never mm-hmm. go to Colin Kaepernick, who is um, a football player, and he's taking a knee during the national anthem. I would never go up to him and be like, Colin, don't protest that way. Football is sacred. Like, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, but like, similarly, I just cannot go to someone with this grievance and say, like, don't protest that way. The pussy hat is sacred. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the pussy hat is magical, but it's not sacred. And I think it's language to be used. And right now it's being used really effectively. I think, um, like, for example, someone um, put a pussy hat on a Harriet Tubman statue and the black community, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about it, and it was healthy discussion, even though it might sound angry or critical. But some people in the black community felt um, the pussy hat was co-opting um, a hero of their own movement, like mm. by doing that. And some people felt it was an inclusive gesture. Mm-hmm. And there is no right or wrong, which is can be kind of scary when you first enter politics, because like, especially as an Asian American, you're like. I want to do it the right way. And you're like, right. wait, if, is there no right way? Fuck. Like, you know, yeah. like, you know, and what that's really, behind, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, I think just accepting that there's no perfect way to do this, to protest, to be political, to be active, or, or even to be in solidarity. I think to approach intersectionality, yes, we have to be more inclusive and, and so forth. But we also have to... Um, lose perfectionism you know my book Mm -hmm. is a lot about losing perfectionism in yourself but we also need to do that as a movement right right when people found out that it was you an asian american woman who started this project how do they react um especially non-asian people well it's two things i think first of all a lot of people they can't believe a person started it white Mm -hmm. asian female male Mm -hmm. they're just like wait it came from somewhere like you know it would just and i think like we forget that there's magic in our lives all the time because we think like oh magic and movie magic stuff happens out there my life is normal i know normal people i do normal things no you are an abnormal person doing abnormal things with abnormal friends like you everyone's so interesting and magical but we forget that it's like Mm. another version of the haze i think uh it just seems like this hat, it spread so much that it's hard to believe that it came out of one person's right. mind. But I'm really proud that I, you know, came up with idea, channeled the idea, like however you want to say it. Um, but I don't think that's what makes me special. I think women, girls, people of color, everyone, we have great ideas all the time. Mm-hmm. But especially women, girls, and people of color, we are taught to talk ourselves out of those ideas. Right. right? So... So I think if I'm special at all, it's not because I had a great idea. We all have great ideas. It's that I chose to nurture my idea Mm -hmm. instead of squelch it, instead of being like, oh, like that could never happen or what if it fails or like I don't have the experience for that. I was like, oh, let's just try it, right? And that's why I wrote a book not about so much about like, look at me. I'm so like I wanted – I didn't want to write a book about the past in that way I wanted to write a book for the present and for the future where give people tools to nurture Mm -hmm. their own amazing quote-unquote crazy ideas right Mm -hmm. because that's everywhere anyway and then uh, I think secondly people are really like surprised because they assumed it was yeah like a white woman activist um what other what else have I heard um someone in New York uh wanted to meet me um and perhaps collaborate and they were like they were so blunt they were like yeah we thought you would be an angry white lesbian with red spikes in your hair i was like oh that's really specific (laughs) okay like you know a lot of people also like you know maybe like a more matronly older like uh, white woman or something but no it was me So, Crystal, we do have a question for you, and I want to direct it towards Janet because she's our girl that's actively dating or semi-actively dating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to step away from politics for a second, you mentioned in your book that you've dated a pretty wide age range of men, right? So you've dated <laughs> guys who are, like, younger than you and 22 at the time. You were probably, like, in your late 20s, I think. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah. And you all, you've also dated men who are, like, 55. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a that's like three gener not generation three decades. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Um, 
Could you share with One us, of the guys like, I dated did become a grandfather, like... Whoa, like, while you were dating him? <laughs> yeah. Wow. How long did you date him for? Um, just on and off a few years, yeah. yeah. Like, oh. yeah. What, was the, what was the appeal? I'm, like, very curious yeah. about this. You know... The guilt. Um... I don't think the age itself was an appeal. I think it was the fact that um, it was his personality. And I have to say, like, the okay, so I went on a dating website a while ago. And I was like, well, like, this guy I dated, I like him. And he's, like, you know, 20-plus years old. He's, like, say, 55 mm-hmm. at the time, right? So I was like, I'm going to put my age range of, like, you know, from 22 to 55 because, like, I've dated that. I like them and great. And then, like, the people I got in were, like, horrible. They looked like Santa Claus. I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess, like, the 55-year-old I dated was not, like, the typical yeah, right. George Clooney of the group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, something like that. Yeah, so it's, like, yeah, actually, George Clooney's 55 or something like that. So, like, um, <laughs> I could see that. You see that, Mel? Yeah, he's hot. Dating a <laughs> Well, I have to say, I think there's also a bit of a blind spot thing where it's, like, when I see, like, a couple with a big age range, I'm like, ugh, gross. And then I, then I like, I like, we'll go on a date with a guy, and I'm like, oh, this is totally fine. Like, you yeah. know, so there's a little bit of like double standard selective thinking there, I think. But, you know, it's just really about like who I connect with, I think. Yeah. So was there, were there like personality things about that guy who was 55 that you also found in someone who was 22? Um, or like what, what made me think of specifically of a younger guy you've dated and like what attracted you to him? Oh, he was, um, he was really cute. Um, <laughs> but also, I, I guess with either extreme, I didn't realize how far they yeah. were for me. So, so there's that. They were both really funny and creative. And I think no matter what age, I think that youthful energy of exploring mm. was both there. I will say, I think, like, I don't do so well with guys exactly my age. I feel like guys exactly my age aren't, like, Emotionally there? They aren't emotionally there. They're very, like, self-involved. They're very, like, uh, I mean, there's so so many, like, assumptions here, but you guys go with me. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, like, I think guys who are a lot older actually um, nicer to you on dates. They, like, mm. or they know how to treat women. Yeah. Because they've dated around. I do feel like you're a bit of an old soul. How's the sex? Did you, <laughs> you beat me to a telly. <laughs> you don't have to answer, but I mean, one telly could. This one age have more endurance than the other stamina, like you know. Or do they oh, get it's back so pain funny. Easily, like so. they, they're like they will tell you themselves. They're like, oh, like the older guys are like younger guys. They don't last this long, and, and the younger guys are like older guys. Like they take forever to get back, but me, it's like two minutes. Like, yeah, like so it's like they, they, they talk about it. I don't even have to. That um, is true. That is true. I've uh, yeah when I've dated I guess like a younger guy he was very focused on like the age difference mm-hmm. and having to sell himself like he was compensating for that yeah, right yeah, yeah. and then when if a guy's like much older it's the same thing he feels like he has to compensate for that or like explain but <laughs> so I love it it's yeah. like yeah they're trying to like win you over <laughs> well also like I don't know I feel like there's a trend now um where like you see, I always thought Viagra was used by like older guys mm-hmm. like 50s 60s 70s like that but, like, I see now, like, men in their, like, mid-late 30s and early 40s using Viagra oh, really? to give them, like, that extra, Do like, they, like, show ooh. you? They're like, I'm about to pop this pill, so get ready. <laughs> well, or... it's like kind of a mix between, like, guy friends and, like, people I'm dating. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, they're like, yeah, I take, like, a half to, like, help me or something. I was like, wow. really? Like, and, but I've seen that happening more and more. Um, it's like steroid for the dick. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But what's really funny is that when they get older, they don't see very well. And so they're like, oh, I can't read the. Like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but, like that's, that's like really small medical. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but that is, I think that's speaking to the state of dating culture, right? Where mm-hmm. you're constantly, if you're dating a bunch of people all the time, you're constantly trying to impress versus like in the past where you only dated, you're dating in like long term relationships, there isn't this need to impress this person. So it's sad to me that guys are resorting to Viagra in order to like make It's sad, but I'm also. So like finally they like are caring, <laughs> like you know what I mean it's like like this is so mean because it's better that like all of us get less neurotic about our looks but it makes me feel like oh like if women have to be this neurotic about our looks at least guys should join us that's like so you know? true like that's so true so you're doing something for me for once this is great <laughs> no exactly and I by the way not to make everything so serious but like I think the 
onus of birth control should fall on men and women but mm-hmm. it's off mostly on women right mm-hmm. and so we have to take you know we don't have to but like right. there's these, like to. Oh, choose to <laughs> or like the, but the choices offered aren't that many where right. you're like okay i can ch- take these hormones change my body and then they don't even really develop male contraceptive pills. right, right. or i know it's they're not funded right it's right exactly like there yeah. has been male contraceptives and but also like, did you read that funded. same thing i did like Probably. this danish study where they were trying the male contraceptive pill and men were reported feeling like yeah really like I'm fatigued bloated right and bloated like, and it's like just, monthly yeah <laughs> and it's like oh. All right. Thank you, Krista, so much for joining us today. This was an amazing opportunity for us to get to know you. And for our listeners, you have so many gems that you offered us um, in this episode. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about where to find you online and what you're doing next? Thank you guys so much. I like had such a good time. I was so looking forward to this and I love like reveling in my Asian-ness actually. (laughs) Like, you know, it's the right place to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so you can find me on kristasuh.com. So that's K-R-I-S-T-A-S-U-H.com. Um, and from there, you can follow me on um, Instagram at kristasuh. On Facebook, I'm Ms. Kristasuh. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, find me because I really would love to stay connected. And I Honestly, I would love to have more followers who are Asian American because I feel like when I wrote this book, DIY Rules for a WTF World, I'm on um, tour right now for it. I kind of wrote it for with you in mind, right? Like, or like the younger version of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the subtitles, How to Speak Up, Get Creative, and Change the World. So I'm putting out more like supplementary um, content for the book to like help people um, through. So that's uh, going to be on my website uh, join my mailing list. Uh, it's really fun, I promise. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's that's where to find me. Please come by. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Krista is a super amazing, inspirational ABG. Mm-hmm. And we are so humbled to have had her on our podcast. And we hope that you guys will go and check out her book, DIY Rules for a WTF World. Um, you can find it on her website, kristasa.com um, or just any Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com. It's a great read, and uh, we know she's done work that's like political in nature, but the book is very good for just if you are growing up and trying to figure out how to uh, tap into your creativity. And please write us at asianbosscrow.gmail.com. We're very curious. We want to hear what you guys think about this episode. Again, you could um, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to us on iTunes at abg-asianbossgirl. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.